Welcome to the Change Management Reviews Podcast, where we bring the best of change management to you. On this episode, we talk with Michael Bungay-Stanier, the founder and senior partner of Box of Crayons, an organization that gives professionals the tools to coach in 10 minutes or less. I'm sure you'll enjoy his interview with Change Management Reviews, Teresa Moulton. Good morning and welcome to the Change Management Review Meet the Expert podcast. We have a real treat today as our guest is Michael Bungay-Stanier and he has a lot to share with us about coaching and uh, change management. Michael Bungay-Stanier is the founder and senior partner of Box of Crayons, a company that helps people and organizations all over the world do less good work and more great work. Box of Crayons is best known for coaching programs that give busy managers the tools to coach in 10 minutes or less. Michael left Australia 25 years ago to be a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford University, where his only significant achievement was falling in love with a Canadian, which is why he now lives in Toronto, having spent time in London and Boston. He has written a number of books. His latest, The Coaching Habit, has been praised as one of the few business books that actually makes people laugh out loud. The book he's proudest of is End Valeria, a collection of essays on great work from leading thinkers that raised $400,000 for malaria, no more. Michael was the first Canadian coach of the year, pretty good for an Australian. He was recently named the number two coaching guru in the world, which caught him by surprise as he's not entirely sure why. Balancing out these moments of success, Michael was banned from his high school graduation for the balloon incident, which was was sued by one of his law school lecturers for defamation, and his first published piece of writing was a Mills and Boone short story called The Mail Delivery. Good morning, Michael, and welcome to the Change Management Review Meet the Expert podcast. We're excited to have you joining us today. You know, I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. And... You know, as I heard you read out that bio, which, of course, I wrote, so I, I kind of knew what was in it. Uh, you know, one of the things that, that is missing in the context of our conversation is that, um, really, I spent most of my career, uh, or kind of the heart of my career, actually being a change management person. I think of myself, you know, if I had to give myself a label in, in our profession, it would be as an OD facilitator. So even though we're talking about coaching, I'm coming to it with actually quite a lot of experience in the challenges, the difficulties, the, the, the agony and the ecstasy of this whole change process. So I'm excited to be talking about that with that, with that background. That's great. Uh, we're really happy about that. I know when uh, you and I fo- first spoke, gosh, it must have been nine months ago or right. so, uh, you had explained how you actually were a change management consultant and had come to the Boston area to start up a practice. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I worked for uh, five or six years as as a consultant in a change management uh, practice. Um, And, you know, a lot of it was kind of in the heyday of of mergers and acquisitions. So, you know, I can boast, such as it's worth, that I wrote the global vision for GlaxoSmithKline when it went through that merger to become GSK. Now, ironically, that was probably the easiest piece of work I did in that whole piece. You know, it took me 20 minutes to write something, which miraculously has somehow stuck around and is still the global vision. 
and all the other work I did for them, like so much of the work we do in change management, is a bit more elusive to pin down the impact it has because you know, we know we're working in complex systems where, for the most part, there's not a kind of linear effect where you pull a lever and something pops out the other side. We're really trying to contribute to how a complex system changes and evolves, and that's, that's you know, difficult but challenging and lovely at the same time. Yes, that's why we love this field. So um, I was really excited to have you as a podcast guest uh, to share uh, the essence of the coaching habit with us and maybe some examples of how you see the uh, essence of it applying to change management itself as we go through this interview. Right, exactly. Awesome. So, Michael, um, can you share with us what the what you think the crux of the coaching habit is and tell us a little bit about what motivated you to write this book? Well, you know, if I'm honest, part of it I'm motivated because of the work we do at Box of Crowns. And as you said in the introduction, we, our, we have a very narrow focus, which is helping busy managers, giving them the practical tools so they can coach in 10 minutes or less. But there's thinking behind that, which I know the, the listeners to this podcast will appreciate, which is... There's so much that's required as the change management process, but it occurred to us that coaching is just one of those foundational skills that is useful, whether your organization is thriving or whether it's struggling or whether there's an explicit change agenda or whether there's an implicit change agenda. Coaching is one of those skills that allow people and teams to be more focused, to have more impact, to be more engaged. And honestly, and this is the bigger driver for me. It's like helping people be more human in the work that they do. I mean, I am influenced by Peter Block's work. I love his stuff. Mm. And I once heard Peter say, you know, he saw his job, his his role as help giving people responsibility for their own freedom. Mm. And I love that. I love that saying because our challenge in organizational life so often is we kind of have that autonomy stripped away a little bit. You know, we become, we wait to be told what to do. We we submit ourselves to the hierarchy. And this mm-hmm. stepping forward to take responsibility for your own freedom is a really powerful call to action and humanity. And I'd like to think that the, the, the enabling busy managers and leaders to be more coach-like will, allows them to do that for themselves and for the people that they lead and influence. Yeah, that's really powerful. That's a that's a very um, it's a it's just a really poignant uh, vision for coaching. Right. And yeah, I I love that. So if you were to think about um, the concepts in your book and share a little bit about some of the yeah. uh, thoughts that might apply to us as change management professionals, what do you think those might be? Well, I'll start by kind of sharing my uh, a little bit of how I think about change, and and you know this won't be a surprise to anybody who's listening in. But you know one of the things that's really obvious to me is that change is about dealing with complex systems, mm-hmm. and complex systems don't have linear mechanical rules to them. They they tend to operate more by principles. So for me, part of the writing of this book is to go, how do we get down to things, you know, I love the saying, make things, this is Einstein, have things be as simple as possible, but no simpler. So in the book, we've got a few core principles there. The first is, and this is the first chapter, 
which, by the way, people can download from thecoachinghabit.com. It's all about how do you build new habits. I mean, the change work that we do is effectively saying, at its crux, we need people to behave differently. You know, if you're trying to shift a culture, well, what is a culture but a collection of habits? So we need new habits to create a new culture. So we need, we need to understand what habits are. And that's the first part of the book, a very simple formula, the new habit formula for actually helping understand and how to build new habits. Now, I mean, as an aside, it is simple. It doesn't mean it's easy because, you know, it's hard to shift old habits, as everybody knows. But the, the process for doing that is actually relatively straightforward. And then the other part of the book is actually just saying, look, if you had seven good questions, that's actually enough to become a lot more coach-like and actually have more impact like that. So a good deal of what this book is about is about saying, you don't need much. <laughs> do a few things and do them well, and that's going to shift and change things around you. And I guess those are kind of the kind of core principles of the book. Build habits. Seven good questions takes you a long way down the path. That's great because uh, as a trained coach myself, you know, at the programs to to acquire the skills are quite significant. So, you know, for you to boil it down uh, to those two concepts makes it less intimidating and I think more accessible for all of us who are heads down in projects trying to get a lot of work done, but we can actually make a difference thinking about those. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I I do get some pleasure out of people who are trained coaches (laughs) saying to me, Oh my God, I spent, you know, X thousands of dollars and X number of months learning stuff. And it, you know, you've given me 80% of what I need here in a, in a $10 book. Um, right. And, and, you know, the whole Prato principle of the 80-20 rule, 20% of what you do makes 80% of the difference. Well, we've just tried to focus on that. We've tried to make sure that if I could just get you to focus on the critical things, what are those crucial, critical things, and how do we do those? And that's um, this this quest. Um, you may know this other quote. Uh, this is an American, you know, one of the one of the U.S. Supreme Court judges. I can't oh, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but he says, and I'll mangle the quote a little bit. But he says something like, "Look, I don't care. If, I don't give a fig for simplicity on this side of complexity, mm. but I would give anything." for simplicity on the other side of complexity. And that's a, you know, that's a powerful insight just for all of us in the change management world, but also for how we think about coaching as well. Yes, that's great. And, you know, as change management professionals, you know, we inherently know that uh, coaching is needed in our work, and often we're focused on, you know, completing our deliverables and going to our meetings, but you know, not as much on the interactions, I find. Uh, those seem to be, you know, conversations that we have, but um, it can be hard to discern exactly what uh, coaching would look like uh, to help us improve our work. And so I'm wondering, could you give us some specific examples of how you see coaching practices improving our ability as change management professionals to work with our clients? Yeah, uh, I can, and um, you know, I want to direct people's memories, attentions to the work of Ed Shine. So, you know, if if you've got Peter Block up on one pedestal, you put Ed Shine up on the other pedestal, because they're they're both such great thinkers here. Mm-hmm. And you know, Ed Shine um, wrote his you know, he, he's written so many good pieces about so many different things, from 
this kind of corporate culture guide and the three kind of three levels of what a corporate culture is to career anchors. But one of the things that he talks about is um, the different forms of consulting. Mm-hmm. This work really influenced Peter Block's work around his Flawless Consulting book, which is a, really a must-read for, for anybody listening in. And Ed Shine says, look, there are three different types of roles of consulting. There's the expert role. You know, you come in, you get told what they want, you deliver what they want, you hope it goes well. Um, there's the doctor-patient model. You know, there's a bit more of a conversation, a bit more of a diagnosis, and then typically the doctor prescribes something. And thirdly, there's the what Shine calls process consulting, which is uh, where the consultant kind of manages the process, guides the guides the client, but doesn't really take over. Mm-hmm. And all of these roles um, have their place. They all have their advantages and their disadvantages to them. But typically, when you're looking to work through some complex uh, process, and you know, change management is typically that, um, at least starting at the process consultant place is the more powerful place to start because it creates a sense of autonomy, every treated as adults, um, there's a shared partnership around that. Mm. And all of this is a very long answer to say being more coach-like is at the heart of process consulting where you lead with curiosity and you essentially resist the rush to action and advice as long as possible. There's obviously always places for action and places for advice and places for expertise. But whether you're an external consultant or an internal consultant, these places, tend, that, that muscle tends to get overworked rather than underworked. And being more coach-like can be a really powerful way of actually working through a process of change, I think. Yes. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really good set of advice for us because, uh, again, you know, it's easy for us to get caught up in our methodologies and our tools, and this process consulting piece is definitely something that can be revisited over and over again. Exactly. Us, you know, bring the coaching skills to the fore. Um, so when you're thinking about, uh, it, you know, doing this process consulting in a context of organizational change, uh, Michael, what are some of the most effective coaching questions that a change management practitioner could have in their back pocket, per se, in doing their work? Well, let, let, I mean, in the book we talk about seven questions, but if, by putting me on the spot here, I'm going to share three of those seven questions that I think could be really useful. Mm-hmm. The first is what we call the focus question. And the insight behind the focus question is so often we are busy solving the first problem rather than the real problem. Because we get you know, tempted by the first thing that shows up and if we have some ideas or solution or experience, we tend to go, oh, let's, let's work on that. But the starting principle for me is that the first challenge that gets talked about is almost never the real challenge. Mm-hmm. So the focus question is, what's the real challenge here for you? Mm. And, and the way that's kind of said or written really matters because it you know, the the basic version of that is what's the challenge here? But you know you're going to get a certain level of, I'm going to say superficiality to a response to that. Mm-hmm. The, the, the upgrade is to say what's the real challenge here? And, you know, that's a great question. And that already forces people to think and reflect a bit more because you're saying that there's a, 
a range of challenges. You have to figure out which is the real challenge. But then I think the question becomes super powerful when you ask, what's the real challenge here for you? And adding for you on the end of that question is when the spotlight swings from the challenge to the person working on the challenge. And that can really amplify the depth of the answer and the experience there. So that's the first question, which I think is useful. The second question is what we call the the best coaching question in the world. So <laughs> we put a lot of kind of drum roll, glittery, I don't know what to it, but it's like we you know we think it's it's super powerful, um, and it's it's very straightforward, you know, and it's a three word question, and the acronym is AWE. So I can claim it's it's literally an awesome question, mm-hmm. and AWE stands for and what else. And what else? And what's powerful here, Teresa, is that, and what else does two things. First of all, it says your first answer is not necessarily your only answer, and it's probably not your best answer. The second thing it does is it's a self-management tool to help you stay curious rather than rushing into advice and action and solutions, which we're so wired to do. Mm-hmm. And then I think the third and final question that I'd offer up is the final question in the book, the learning question. Because one of our roles as consultants, whether that be internal or external consultants, is to help ourselves and our people learn as we go through the experience. Because in in the learning becomes the uh, increasing our capacity and our confidence and our autonomy. So you need to help people learn. And to do that, You need to understand how people learn. And what's frustrating for all of us is people don't actually learn when you tell them stuff. You know, it kind of goes in one ear and then rapidly exits. It goes out the other ear. And they don't even really learn when when they do stuff. Maybe there's a bit of transfer of learning there, but not, not so much. The real learning happens when people have a chance to reflect on what just happened. So the the learning question is, um, I mean, there are variations of it, but the one I like is, what was most useful or most valuable for you? Okay. What was most useful or most valuable? And honestly, you can add this at the end of a team meeting, at the end of a one-on-one meeting, at the end of a casual conversation, at the end of an email, at the end of a text. All of that can cause a point of reflection, and in reflection become, comes learning. So I think that's the third question, because if you're working through change, one of the ways you change is you increase insight, because in, it's insight that leads to action. So how do you build an insight? You help people learn. How do you have them learn? You ask them what was most useful or most valuable about what we just did or what we just talked about. That was pretty profound for me, The last, the all of what you said, but when you said, you know, how do we... Um, how do we help with change? We create insight. Right. That, I, I, you know, that's not often a perspective that you hear in the change management world. Uh, and I think that, you know, hearing it just so simply and then having, you know, one question we can remember uh, that we can apply anywhere yes. just is fabulous. Yeah. Fabulous. It's, um, you know, action without insight <laughs> is just action. And right. It may be good in the moment, but it's like, is it replicable? Is it scalable? Is it able right. to operate when you're not in the room? And if there's not the kind of insight underpinning the action, then then it's a it's a less effective moment. Right. 
Well, thank you for sharing those three. Those are really good. And yeah, when my you pleasure. Were, <laughs> when you were presenting, I had the pleasure of uh, hearing Michael present at an uh, ACMP New England webinar a while back, and um, I had been scribbling vigorously to capture some of these impactful questions, and I have them around my computer now on Post-its. Oh, that's great. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. So... Uh, one of the other things I was curious about, Michael, is uh, what advice you would give to change management professionals who are in the process of developing new client relationships on a project. Well, yeah, I'm, ste- I'm stealing lessons I've learned from Peter Block. Um, so one of the things that I found most profound in, in working with Peter was um, his idea of what a social contract is. Mm-hmm. And he, he distinguishes between, uh, you know, the, the work contract, what are you going to do, to the social contract, how are we going to work together? Mm-hmm. And what's seductive when you're working with a client, new or old, is to get into the work stuff because it makes everybody feel better. You know, look, here's the challenge, here are the ideas, here's what's going to go. You're in that honeymoon period where everybody likes each other. It's all good. But what you can be assured of is that somewhere down the line, things are going to go off the rails a little bit. You know, it's just the nature of human relationships. It's, you're, going to, you're going to feel disappointed and let down by your client. Your client's going to feel disappointed or confused or let down or sad by that, something that you've done. And the relationship is in danger. And if the relationship is in danger, the work is in danger. So there's value in investing in going, let's get clear about how we work together. And, you know, there are some simple, uh, simple but difficult questions to ask right up front before you kind of plunge in or, you know, as, you, as this relationship evolves, such as, uh, you know, when you've had a good relationship working with somebody like me, what did that look like? When there's been a bad relationship, what did that look like? What were the unilateral actions you took when things started to go bad? How will we address it when things go bad? One of the things that Peter said that really struck a chord for me was this. He said, what you can't feel you can't talk about in the social contracting conversation is the stuff that you never feel you can talk about in the relationship. So, for instance, you know, one of the challenges many of us, certainly if we're external consultants, have is the money conversation with the client. Not everybody has this problem, but many of us do. And if you never quite get around to having that conversation about how the money works, then the money thing will always be kind of this thing that's in the relationship that's not working so well. And what's cool about the social contracting conversation is in some ways it doesn't even matter what the answers are. What you're doing is you're giving both of you permission to talk about stuff when it goes wrong. So by talking about it kind of more upfront, when it needs to be talked about again, you're like, this is a topic we've already touched on, we can go back to it. As opposed to, wow, we've never, I don't even know how to bring this up. <laughs> So that would be my, my take on it, is like read up on Peter Block's stuff around social contracting. I think it's in his book, Flawless Consulting, which is just a wonderful resource. Everybody should have that on their, on their bookshelf. 
Um, but I'm sure there's stuff on the, you know, type in Peter Block social contracting into the the Google and you will find something for sure. Mm. That's great. I uh, I find that that what you brought up is actually the tough stuff to talk about and it is uncomfortable and as change, you know, professionals, we have to make sure our, you know, we ourselves can handle those conversations that are uncomfortable because we're asking our clients to do the same. So exactly. that's, yeah, yeah, that's great. Well, we're almost out of time here, um, Michael, but I, I did want to just bring out um, one of the aspects of your book that I found so fabulous, and I must admit this is in addition to all the uh, poignant content in it, but it's actually one of the uh, funniest books that I have read that has real content. Uh, I just laugh, I laugh and laugh every time I go through it. (laughs) And I just think that was masterful in terms of how you wrote that. Well, you know what, there's a reason for it. I I mean, I honestly find most business books pretty terrible. (laughs) They're like, they're boring, they're way too long, they're they're humorless, and... um, Maybe that's how I just feel about business in general. So for me, you know, I want this to be a book that people love. So first of all, I was like, what's the shortest book I can write that's going to be the most useful? So I wrote it so that people could pick it up and read it on a on a plane, or mm-hmm. you know, read it in two or three hours and and be done with it. Secondly, is like I want to enjoy this. I want you to like I I think I'm hilarious, so I want some of that funniness to try and come through and. <laughs> Some people will find me amusing and some people won't get the jokes at all, but but it is one of the things that I'm proudest of is, you know, when people write an Amazon review or whatever, um, people go, you know, this was, a, this was a funny book to read. I'm like, fantastic. <laughs> yeah, so if you're on a plane and you see all these people laughing out loud, we'll know what they're reading. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's great. And, Michael, where can people find out more about you and your business and the book? Yeah, great. Thank you for asking. So, of course, you'll find the book in bookstores and on Amazon and the like. But if you just want to kind of get into the content, there's thecoachinghabit.com. And, you know, whether or not you pick up a copy of the book, there's just a lot of free resources there. So you can just watch videos and downloads and all sorts of stuff. So um, feel free to jump on and pillage that. And if you'd like to learn more about Box of Crayons and our approach to coaching and our, you know, as Teresa said, we're all about giving busy managers the practical tools so they can coach in 10 minutes or less. Well, then the Box of Crayons website is boxofcrayons, or one word, dot biz, B-I-Z, or B-I-Z, depending on where in the world you live. <laughs> That's great. Well, really, uh, we really appreciate you spending some time with us this morning, Michael, and Wish you luck as you uh, continue to spread the word about, about coaching in 10 minutes or less. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Teresa. Okay. Take care. We hope you've enjoyed today's podcast, listening to Teresa Moulton of Change Management Review, interviewing Michael Bungay-Stanier, the founder and senior partner of Box of Crayons. Be sure to check out our website at changemanagementreview.com. We also invite you to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and join us on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.